Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Welcome. This is going to be part three in our Intention Within Marriage series. And if you haven't seen the first two videos, it might be a good idea to kind of go back and watch them in order. Um, and this is going to be the concluding video. And it's always hard to know how to conclude these things because there's so much to talk about. But our hope is whether you are married, thinking about getting married, uh, that this at least sets uh, kind of a framework for um, how to move forward and how to think uh, correctly with God's heart and mind when it comes to marriage. Uh, just a fair warning, we're going to be talking about some mature content today. So if you're watching this with your kids, uh, might be a good one to skip. Uh, if you, um, uh, again, if, if you're, just want you to be aware of that, where you're listening to this or watching this and who's watching it with you. Um, and then also, if you watched the last video, Jen and I got to do that together. This is not obviously Jen and I together. Um, so although I cannot offer both a male and female perspective, I am hoping that this will be able to offer you a biblical perspective uh, when it comes to this. And then just kind of the last disclaimer before we dive in. Um, as we've said the last few uh, messages, um, we are directing these talks towards um, marriages and people who are thinking about getting married. Um, some of them which might be in a really hard spot and tough spot. We are not addressing relationships who are struggling with addiction or abuse um, or adultery. Uh, if that's your context, uh, there's, there's probably a different uh, set of direction and wisdom that you need. Um, and for that, obviously, the Word of God is a resource, but so can we be as a church. So if that's your scenario, please don't hesitate to ask for help, specifically if you're in danger. Um, and so make sure that you, we don't just apply all these principles if it's in, a, it's in a scenario that is not what we're talking about today. So again, this is for directed for marriages, even marriages that might be in a tough spot, um, but it's not talking to those who are in maybe a more toxic environment. Uh, so with that, four things that we're hoping to knock out today as we conclude uh, these three talks on marriage. Number one, we're going to be talking about cultivation um, and how to create growth within your marriage. Uh, second thing, we're going to talk about cash. We're going to be talking about money. We're talking about how finances uh, play a role within, uh, within marriage. Thirdly, we're going to talk about consummation. We're going to be talking about intimacy within marriage and what that looks like and what God's designed for that. And then we'll conclude talking about what we started with, and that is Christ and how Christ will always be the centerpiece and really the formation of what uh, marriage needs to be built Upon, So let's work through these different themes. Number one, cultivation. Um, as Jen and I were just thinking about some things we wanted to make sure we touched on um, in this condensed series. Uh, one of the things uh, comes to mind when a couple years back we redid our backyard. Um, when we moved into our house, there was this really, really tough ground. I think it might have been grass at one point. Um, but was just completely solid. And I had this dream to have this incredibly beautiful, lush, green, real grass, none of that turf stuff uh, laid out in my backyard. And, um, and, and as I was looking at that, I, I realized that the hard work was not going to be planting seed. Uh, it was going to be getting the soil prepped. And I think that oftentimes the illustrations that the Bible draws from are agriculture, 
type illustrations. And, and one of those themes is this idea of cultivation, of, of drying up soil. I remember I had to rent this massive machine that would just grind into the dirt and mix it up. And then we had to put a layer of topsoil and grind that in and water it and prep it, remove the big rocks before we could even plant the seeds of grass. And by seeds of grass, I, I mean sod that I laid out in about two hours. But all that to say, it was two days of prep for two hours of sod to be laid out. And I think the same times in our marriage, we're trying to like plant some seeds and things don't seem to be growing. Or maybe we're trying to pour on some easy turf and to fill in some gaps, but it doesn't seem to be growing. And sometimes we need a full-blown cultivation of the soil of our marriage. Romans 12, 1, 2, 1 through 2 says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, that in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And after Paul spends 11 chapters in Romans just laying out a beautiful and dense theology of the gospel, he gives the response to it. He says, therefore, we are to live in such a way, living sacrifice, giving up our bodies, um, surrendering to the Lord in worship, not conforming to the pattern of the world, but being transformed by the renewing of the mind, I kind of want to work backwards in that verse because there's talks about your mind, it talks about what we worship, it talks about our bodies, talks about God's mercy. But I think a good place to for us to start with is the idea of the mind, because there is uh, there's something powerful that happens within us when we start changing the way that we think. Because if we could change the way we think, we change the way we interact, we change the type of person. Uh, ultimately, that we become. And the Bible knows this to be true. Uh, I think about Colossians 3, 12 through 14, which is a verse that I read at the end of most weddings that I officiate. And it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Um, and as I read that as a blessing over couples, I can't help but look at that list and just say, I wonder how many of our marriages fit within that context. And although Paul is not writing specifically about marriage, he's writing specifically as a result of what happens when we start following Jesus. Is that are our marriages marked with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with each other, forgiving one another? Um, as the Lord has forgiven us, and having the virtue of love putting on top of all of that. And, and I think the question that we need to ask if we're, if we're inviting God in to really cultivate our minds and our souls and our marriages, is that how do you do that? How do you, not again, not just sprinkle some, some seed and water it every once in a while, how do we actually change from the deep sense? How do we remove those rocks and how do we till up the soil of our hearts? And maybe you can resonate this. Maybe you've been in a marriage now for 5, 10, 15, 20 years and you have found the ground and the soil of your heart grow hard. And um, I would just encourage you you would invite the Holy Spirit just to come and cultivate, just begin to start and stir up and churn up that soil. If you're thinking about getting married, uh, don't let it grow hard to continue to do that. And, and one of the things I wanted to, to make sure that we talked about 
that has been really helpful um, in kind of putting language to how to see that transformation um, comes out of Dr. Terry Hargrave's material. He works through a system called restoration therapy, works with tons and tons of relationships. And he um, really specializes in seeing transformation happen in relationships that have really grown stuck. And one of the things that he's helped articulate is this thing called the pain cycle and the peace cycle. And I wanted to spend a couple minutes identifying that because I think this is one of those ways that we can help change our thinking so that we can be transformed within our relationships. First, I want to talk about the, the pain cycle. Um, if you've ever been in a relationship, have you ever gotten in the same argument over and over and over again? And all of a sudden, you're just like, why are we arguing about this again? And maybe you're arguing about different things, but it always shows up in the exact same way or the same time. And I think that's because the way God wired our brain is that we get into habits, and those habits create neurological pathways, kind of like ridges or grooves within our brain. And so we go back to those things. But one of the interesting things that, that, that Dr. Hargrave points out is that a lot of those grooves that are, are really embedded into our brain when we face stress or when we feel alone or when we feel pain were engraved before we were married. And I think a lot of times we're thinking, what's wrong with my marriage? But the real question should be, why, why do I respond the way that I respond? Why do I feel the way that I feel? And how much, how far can I go back to identify how those things started happening? So he, he identifies this thing called the pain cycle. And the pain cycle is this. And able to identify, he says, you have to write down when you're in those tense moments of conflict, of pain, uh, write down how you feel. And, there's, and you can even just Google a list of feeling words if that's something that's hard for you to identify. But write that down. Like, man, I feel abandoned. Um, I feel scared. I feel unseen. I feel overlooked. Um, wh how, whatever emotions, those deep-seated emotions come, uh, once you write those things down, it's important to ask yourselves, what are some of the earliest memories you have of feeling those things? Not just in your marriage, because again, those, those are feelings that you began to identify probably long before you were married. And then the second question is, once you can identify how you're feeling, is then you want to look at how do you cope when you have those feelings? And this is, is your pain cycle. You feel a sense of um, abandonment, a sense of chaos, a sense of what, whatever may happen in that, that fight or that conflict or over time within your marriage. And the next question is, how do you cope with that? Do you have outbursts of anger? Do you storm off? Do you have passive aggressive tendencies? Do you give them the silent treatment? Uh, do you use your words to belittle or do you use your words literally to just be louder to diminish that person? Do you pull up that person's past? And these are all kind of weapons of choice that as human beings we've learned to use as safeguards to say, you're hurting me and I want you to stop. And this is your pain cycle. You feel something deeply and then you cope with it normally in the same ways. You normally don't respond to your pain in different ways every single time. They're normally pretty predictable, which is that thing if I always go back to this thing. And once you can identify and literally write down, this is how I feel, then write down, this is how I respond, this is how I cope to what I feel. And then you do that, and, and each person does this within marriage. And then you begin to start asking one another, 
how did how when did you start feeling those feelings were you eight years old when your parents got a divorce did you see that when your father wouldn't show approval of you I mean whatever and kind of work through those things and then you write down like when those things happen often not just our feelings but even how we cope we've learned those grooves happened long before we were married or this is how my this is how my family showed me how to respond in stress and in pain and when I feel alone or overlooked and I think when you can begin to start seeing that oftentimes we're always trying to address the coping but once you can see that your spouse when when he or she gets angry or walks away or does this thing or belittles you if you can attach it to the feeling and not the coping mechanism then you can start having compassion and so you have this pain cycle but the question is well how do you have a peace cycle and how do those things intersect the peace cycle, um, and again, I'm not going through this really, really fast, uh, but the peace cycle is rather than what, what are the things you feel, it's you have to look at what are the truths that God's word says about you. So take that same list of how you feel. I feel small. I feel abandoned. Um, I feel overlooked. Um, I feel unworthy. And Take that very same list and then go and do a Bible study on the truth of God about those feelings. And then literally write them out, say them out. This is the truth from God's perspective and God's reality about who I am. Not about how, what you feel, but just who you are. What's the truth about who you are based on the word of God? And then you're going to write down how you want to act. Um, how... How you, um, how you want to respond based on the truth that which you know. Maybe rather than storming off, it's I want to collect my thoughts and have an honest conversation. Um, rather than blowing up, it's I want to respond with gentleness and kindness. Rather than being passive and, and giving the quiet, state, quiet treatment, maybe you're saying, you know what, I want to have the courage to be able to voice with graciousness how I'm feeling and, and I think when you can identify your pain cycle and peace cycle, all of a sudden the work of cultivation begins to start happening, of realizing of empathy for one another and understanding why you cope the way you do, but also how to, how to do that. So he gives, us, he gives four steps on what to do. Number one, step one, say what you feel. Number two, say what you normally would do. So normally I would do this. I would start throwing dishes or whatever. Third step Say what's truth. And fourth step, say, say what you will now do differently. And in the last five minutes, I gave you what's probably months of therapy. Um, and I know that. I know that I'm just throwing stuff out of here and I, and I know just enough to be dangerous. Um, all that, all I'm trying to do is to kind of stimulate that you don't have to be stuck. That hard soil doesn't have to remain hard. Um, this is a quote from, from one of his books. He says this, You may feel like that you already know the truth about yourself and it's not pretty, but God's desires for you are very different. That's because loving interactions allow people to feel worthy, valuable, and significant. And because safe environments lead people to feel secure and capable, in fact, God's design looks like the opposite of your old feelings in the pain cycle. While your spouse and your marital situation are at work pushing your buttons, God is behind the scenes waiting to remind you of the truth. You are not unwanted. 
God longs for a relationship with you. You are not insignificant. The creator of the universe valued you so much that he sent his only son to die for you. You are not defective. God knit you together in your mother's womb and he makes no junk. You are not abandoned or alone. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And just let the truth sink in. If A um, couple practical things. If what I'm talking about here is striking a chord with you, two things I'd encourage you to explore. Number one, there's a book we've mentioned. It's called Five Days to a New Marriage. And this is kind of built within built within that. Uh, you can go on Amazon or wherever and, and get that book. Um, also, Ryan and Drew Walsh are leading an open table, and they're actually going to be working through uh, some of some of this content. Um, so if this, again, is something that would help you, whether you're single or married, um, you might want to consider just checking out their open table um, or, again, ordering that book and starting to work through it um, as your spouse or, I'm sorry, with your with your spouse. Second theme uh, I want to make sure we talk about is the, the theme of, um, of money and finances and realizing that is one of the leading things that people put down for reasons for divorce. Um, and so we have to talk about money because money, although it is an amoral thing, causes great emotion and there can be great opportunity for distrust um, but also great opportunity for safety and to, to see God do really amazing things. In that verse we quoted, Romans 12, 1 through 2, it talks about that he's urging brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And that idea of worship implies what you trust. And, and Paul is, is encouraging the Roman church to put their trust in God. And I think as a culture, one of the, the high idols that we have in our society is our trust of money and finances, which again is why it can create so much emotion within marriage. And, and so I wanted just to spend a minute, again, I'm not a financial expert by any means, but I do wanna just talk about the significance of how to have a, a biblical vision for finances within a marriage. Uh, because again, you're taking two separate worldviews, uh, two separate visions, family of origins, and you're trying to do something about creating a vision for your finances. So I want to uh, read you this verse. This is again Paul, but he's writing a letter to his protege, Timothy. At the very end of his first letter, he says this, command those who are rich, and before you just stop and you'll be like, um, sorry, I'm, I'm not rich. Again, that's, let's just assume because we live in America um, that we are within the top few percentage of the world. So this, I think it does at some level imply to most of us, and I know that every person's situation is, is as affluent or even safe, and you're going paycheck to paycheck. Um, but the, what we're gonna, is going to be talking about here, I think, is something we can all take to heart. It says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I love that last phrase. That when we lay up treasures for ourselves, the firm foundation of the coming age, it helps us take hold of the life that is truly life. And I think um, the reality is we live in a world that economically is, 
is telling us a narrative that you won't be able to experience life until you make so much money. Um, Jen and I got married really young. I was 20, she was 22. We literally, and I'm not exaggerating, had zero dollars in our bank account the day of our wedding. And um, that's how broke we were. We had barely any income. Um, and the the advice, not that we advise that, but the idea is you don't need a lot of money to have financial health within your marriage. The idea is that you have to have two things. Number one, you have to have a common vision for your finances. And number two, you have to have a common strategy for your finances. Um, if you notice, he says, so that they may take hold of that life that is truly life. What, what is your vision within your marriage for your finances? Is it, is it upward mobility? Is it just to get more stuff and bigger houses and nicer cars? And again, all those things are not inherently bad in of themselves. Um, but is there a kingdom-shaped vision for your finances? Do you view what God has given you as an opportunity, as a family, to bless others, to see other people experience freedom, to be able to see that? Because tell you what, when you have a common vision for your finances beyond just a good retirement um, and, and nice things, but you're like, man, I want to see God's kingdom in this area, and I, I want to be generous in this um, in this area that when you guys have that shared vision, it becomes really powerful and really exciting to talk about money. And how do we want to bless people with this? How do we want to see God's kingdom come through this? How do we want to continue to see his church build and kingdom flourish and people uh, receive what they need? All of a sudden, those conversations about money are less about like, did you pay this bill? And I can't believe you spent this. And But it's understanding, oh no, we can come together. But even if you have a common vision, Sometimes where we fall down is we don't have a common strategy. Um, uh, I think one of the greatest things Jen and I ever did for our marriage is just take the FPU, Financial Peace University class. Because it didn't just give us a shared vision, it gave us common language and a common strategy on how to view finances. This was a time in our life when we honestly were living paycheck to paycheck and were barely making enough um, for our growing family. And, but two things. Number one, God was always faithful, always provided. And number two, even with a little, we could be strategic. And that looks like a few just very practical things. Number one is budget. Uh, if you don't have a budget, and specifically if you've been married for 20 years, if you're thinking about getting married in two months, um, redo your budget. And as a part of your budget, talk about your vision and talk about how to prefer and love one another because you guys are probably different when it comes to money. Uh, number two thing I recommend is if you can, talk about your finances at least once a month in a non-emotionally heightened kind of way. Uh, a Saturday morning brunch is probably going to be a way more conducive environment for talking about finances than like 1130 at night when you just got your SDG&E bill. So find time once a month to talk about this and if your finances are lining up with your vision. Um, and then lastly, I would encourage you, a part of finding this vision, and this is beyond finances, but have a yearly retreat with your spouse and just think about how do we want to spend our resources, our time, our passion, our finances in such a way that is built into the way God has wired. Not just you as an individual, but you as a family. Um, and just a practical application here, uh, we do Financial Peace University all the time here at the church. We have another round coming up here in the spring. So be on the lookout for that. If finance is a point of tension within your marriage, Get a common vision, common language, 
and a common strategy so that that thing is not just chipping away at the goodness and the beauty of your marriage. Third thing I want to talk about, this is, we, we're debating if we were going to talk about this subject, but I think if we're talking about marriage, we have to talk about this a bit, is consummation, the idea of intimacy and sex within marriage. And um, although we can't get into every single question that there is about this, there's a couple things I do want to talk about, especially because I'm not doing this teaching with Jen. I, I want to be careful to say I, I know that I'm not going to be able to give a well-rounded approach to this. So I really want to stick to biblical principles about this that will help us create um, how we think about intimacy within marriage and to give us maybe a like a theological framework for us, especially against kind of the more cultural narratives that are coming our way. Um, but recognizing this is, I, I'm not the final authority on this. Um, ultimately, God is. But there are lots of resources um, that you can dive into if this is an area within your marriage um, that has been a point of tension. Um, so a few things I just want to go through here. Number one is God's vision for sex versus culture's vision for sex is very different. Uh, historically within Christianity, there's been a lot of negative negativity around this topic, uh, because of, um, not knowing what to do with it. And there's a couple things I just want to say real quickly here. Number one is that when we are introduced to the idea of, of consummation and intimacy, it's, it's within the first pages of the Bible. Uh, if you remember in Genesis 1:27, when God creates man and woman, he says it is tov, it is good, which means all that God creates is good. And, and that includes, uh, and that includes sex, the, the creation of it. And that's where we need to start. This is, this is good within God's created design for it. The second Hebrew word I want to have you sit with is the word ekad which is the word for knowing each other. It's also the word for sexual intimacy within Hebrew. Interestingly enough, in Genesis 2.21, he says, he took one of his ribs, he took ikad of his ribs, um, and then later in verse 24, it says, and they became one flesh. And so this idea of ikad is that God's vision, his good vision for sex is ultimately summed up with this word of oneness, unity, coming together. And what we've talked a lot about this series, we're very, very different. And that comes to our sexuality as well. So how do we model ourselves like the Trinity in self-giving of ourselves and preferring one another when it comes into this private and intimate portion within marriage Specifically, when culture has a completely different narrative when it comes to this. Let's talk about the cultural narrative uh, comparatively to the biblical narrative uh, when it comes to sex. Um, John Tyson, um, I really like how he phrases this. He says that there is a religious response this is different than biblical, right? This is just religious. This is people within kind of religiosity. And it looks like this. Morality plus willpower equals holiness. But the reality of it is that morality plus willpower equals failure. We will never have enough willpower to be holy. But the cultural narrative is that desire plus consent equals freedom. But the reality is that desire plus consent equals disillusionment. 
Um, just a couple of definitions. God's vision of sex is that it is a self-giving, unashamed, beautiful union within the arena of covenant, whereas a culture's vision of sex is a self-centric, confusing, anxious rec- recreation within the a- arena of consent. Um, and we we live in this world where essentially since the sexual revolution, as that's progressed the past 50, 60 years, is this idea is everything is okay. Nothing's off limit. The only thing we throw in there is this word consent. And God says, this is beautiful and it's good. But rather than the word consent, I use the word covenant. That And a lot of times people assume that the Christian idea, the biblical framework for sexuality is repressive and old-fashioned and oppressive. But actually, if you read the Bible, it is a much higher view of the body, much higher view of sexuality than what our culture offers, which essentially says none of it really matters anyway. Just make sure you get permission. Where the Bible says, no, this is so powerful, so strong, so beautiful, and so good that it needs to make sure that it stays within the context of what it was originally designed for. Um, and so how do, you, how do you come to that place of knowing the difference between biblical versus cultural narratives when it comes to consummation and intimacy? Ronald Rollheiser says this, when you don't follow your desires, you have to examine your desires. I think it's a really good point that a lot of times if we never... If we never just stop to to stop just giving into our desires, we'll never stop to be able to examine them and ask ourselves, is this good? Is this leading to flourishing? A couple other things when it comes to this is not just these biblical and cultural narratives, but it's it's understanding if again, if God created us with intention, how did he create us? Uh, a quick thought on on the brain. Um and again, we're, we're covering over a lot, and I'm sure there are some neuroscientists who'd be upset of what I'm about to say because it's not enough. But there's two main systems within our, our brain. There's the prefrontal cortex, which is kind of our decision-making center and which is not fully developed until we're 25 years old. Um, and then there's the limbic system, which is kind of more our emotional and animal brain, which is kind of more centralized within our brain. And we assume that that our concepts when it comes to sex are in the kind of the the prefrontal cortex of our brain, but actually they're within the limbic system. They're hardwired in, which means that when we engage within intimacy, within sex, it releases a few different chemicals within our brain. Number one is dopamine. We've all heard that chemical before, which is kind of the happy feeling. Um, which is why it is so such a big part of humanity and our culture is because the level of dopamine attached to it. Um, but what's interesting about dopamine is that you, in order to get the same feeling, you need greater and greater hits of that same dopamine, which has long-lasting effects on people who are consistently changing their sexual partners because they are looking for greater and greater experiences within the arena of consent rather than the safety of an arena of covenant. Also for women, uh, during, during uh, moments of intimacy and sex, there is a bonding hormone called oxytocin that is released, and it's only released two times in a woman's life. It's during breastfeeding and when she's having sex. Um, and it's a bonding agent that was 
that is physiological, physiologically wired for it to create a strong, unseparable connection to whoever they're with. Guys have another chemical, they don't have oxytocin released, they have vasopressin that's released, which is another bonding hormone that is released in males based on whatever they are looking on or fixated on during the act um, of sex. And again, does this, but it does essentially the same thing where it creates um, kind of an etched in image of this is what is my definition of intimacy and beauty. And so when you look at all of this biological and physiological hardwiring within the human body, you begin to start have to ask yourself the question, is it good to lean into the cultural narrative that like this doesn't really matter, have as much as you want with as many people as you want, as long as you're consensual? Because what you have found is that within culture, we are seeing a massive crisis within people's ability to maintain intimacy. Um, everything from the rise of pornography, from erectile dysfunctional disorder, um, from things that are saying, I don't know how to create, or rather, I don't know how to sustain intimacy because these chemicals have been firing so much because I'm just listening and leaning into the cultural narrative. Versus if you think about the, the arena of covenant, all of a sudden you realize that actually these were designed to create long-lasting faithful relationships to be bonded and to stay together and not to separate, to not go other places. And obviously, I think one of the greatest um, signs of our time is just the, the massive rise of pornography, where all of a sudden sex has been removed from relationships. Now it's just images. And it's not just for men. The, the statistics are that um, the female addiction is on the rise at a faster rate than men, largely because the rate of men is so high already. But it does something within us. Dr. Doug Weiss says this, sex and pornography can get into a man or woman's heart to the place where it replaces God. It becomes an idol. And how do you know it is an idol? When you're in pain, you go to your idol. When you're in need, you go to your idol. When you're hurt, you go to your idol. When you want to celebrate, you go to your idol. And, um, and I would just encourage you guys, just a quick commercial. If this, is, if this has been a problem within your marriage, um, you're not alone. Um, but just because you're not alone doesn't mean it should just be swept under the rug. Uh, please, I would encourage you, seek healing, counseling, we have an amazing group on Wednesday night called Pure Desire. If you're a guy, I would encourage you to do that. We're praying for um, maybe even a female chapter of that as well. Um, but understanding that we were designed, if you remember the biblical vision for marriage for Ekad is oneness. And so we're going to have to fight the cultural narrative that just says do whatever you want, whenever you want, as long as it's not hurting someone, as long as it's consensual. Um, not to mention... That within that idea, the rise of pornography, like, oh, it's all consensual. I think you also have to understand that that is a massive lie because the statistics on how many people are coerced, if not forced, into that industry are off the charts. The amount of, the amount of research done of how many of these people, whether it's through human trafficking or underage stuff, is alarming and it's getting worse. And now the research is saying that the amount of violence attached to pornography is on the rise. And the reason for that, again, is because the dopamine hits need to get bigger and bigger, is that you actually need to create something else to stimulate that same high. 
hence younger ages, more violence, more things that are distorted because those things in your brain are so closely linked. And so I would just encourage you, this is, this is, this is more than just a private matter. This is, this, is a, this is a health matter. This is a soul matter. This is a justice matter um, that needs to be dealt with. Because I think our culture has just said it's normal, it's not a big deal. And I think God would just say it is a big deal. You need to deal with it as it's a big deal. Another thing is not just how our brains are wired, but how our bodies are wired. I think this is fascinating. Um, men and women, well, have we just talked about this last couple of weeks, are so radically different. But especially within the context of sex, uh, just a few different ways. Um, there, the sex drive for a male peaks when he's 17. For a female, it peaks when she's 50. Uh, climax for a man can happen within seconds, where women, it's going to happen within minutes, probably multiple minutes. Stimulation for men normally is going to be more visual, where women, it's going to be more emotional around safety and connection, although those lines are starting to blend. Um, and all that to say that the question would be like, when God was designing sex, he's like, why would you do that? Why would you create men and women so different? And then all of a sudden, when you take a look back at the Trinity and you start realizing, oh, God in his nature is a self-preferring being. You realize that, again, our cultural, our cultural narrative about sex is it's about you getting yours. That's the narrative of pornography. But the biblical narrative for intimacy is it is a self-giving faithful, safe love. And if that's the case, all of a sudden you realize that God's brilliant in his design because sex is one of the greatest ways to show self-preferring love. If you're married, some of you need to repent from just your vision of sex being selfish. And I would encourage you to, through the strength of the Holy Spirit, just to begin to start viewing it totally different as one of the greatest opportunities just to serve your spouse, which requires a lot of communication and sometimes a lot of healing. And for those who are not married, um, I would encourage you to allow the Holy Spirit and the Bible to change how you think about it. Because we live in a culture that was screaming a completely different direction. And the more that we lean into this, um, the more we will see not only health within marriage, but actually it becomes a whole point of witness. Look at 1 Corinthians 6.18. It says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And I just encourage you to say, when, when you act as if your body is not your own, meaning not that it is separate from you, it is who you are, but that it has been purchased with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you live differently, you love differently, and you get to love your spouse differently within that. Um, last thing I just wanted to kind of end our conversation, I know we've talked about some a lot of things in a short amount of time, the idea of cultivation, that you're not stuck uh, the idea of currency and finances and how to make that work, the idea of intimacy and consummation. and um, um, All of this as we conclude this short series on marriage. So I want to remind you of Ephesians 5.32. That again, the most condensed teaching we have on marriage in the Bible says this, this, this meaning marriage 
is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. I just want to encourage you when it comes to your cultivation, your communication, your compassion for one another, your creativity, your consummation, whatever arena of your marriage or future marriage, may it be a witness pointing toward the beautiful mystery of how Christ loves his church. And to understand that when we adopt that high calling within marriage, it gives us hope for the hard times. It gives us perseverance when things aren't going well. It gives us increased beauty in the day-to-day and the and the maybe the ordinary things. And I would just strongly encourage you that in every single area of your life and in your marriage, God wants in. And when you put him at the center of your finances, the center of your communication, the center of your love life, when you put him at the center of your friendship and you put in all of these things, everything has the possibility to be changed and transformed like we read in Romans chapter 12 today. And, and so I just want to end this year just with some prayer. Praying for you and inviting the Holy Spirit wherever you are. Again, if you're married, just for renewal within your marriage. If you're single and you're thinking about marriage, that you is to give you a healthy perspective. If you're single and not thinking about marriage, which we're going to be talking about next week, by the way, please stay tuned. Um, that, that you'd find the beauty in your high, high New Testament calling to that. But that ultimately we would just think biblically with the heart of God about marriage. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that we don't have to figure out marriage ourselves because this is something you designed and you designed it with intention. May we live into our marriages with intention. God, I pray that you would bring healing and mending into the marriages that are hurting, God, that are worn down, that you would breathe new life and hope into them. God, I pray you give them wisdom and clarity if they need counseling or the right book or the right friends or the right new rhythms or God, of how to put you at the center of it all. Lord, I want to pray that those who are early on in marriage, maybe thinking about getting married or God, that they would align their vision, Lord Jesus, with yours. Lord, I just ask right now that you would just come and help us rebuild, help us cultivate, take out those big rocks and those weeds and those things that have been there maybe even since before we were ever even married. And help us just welcome just the nourishing that you bring within it. Oh, we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.